This is Risk Reward, the place where the next generation of insurance professionals are inspired and found. I'm your host, Darren Wimfield, a senior risk management insurance and finance dual major at Butler University, where I'm also the president of our Gamma Iota Sigma chapter. Joining us today is Stefan from Munich Re. Hey, Stefan. Hey, good morning, Darren. Thanks a lot for being on the program. And my full name is Stefan Matthijsen. It's a Dutch name, very complicated to pronounce. And before we talk more, I have to do one legal disclaimer. Sorry for that. So everything I'm going to say in this presentation is represents my conclusions, opinions, and views, and not the views of my employer, Munich Re America Incorporated. That's all good. Yeah, well, just wanted to reach out to you. You had a very interesting story uh, from when we first talked a couple of years ago during, during an interview, I believe. Uh, so from then, you know, just your career path really stuck out to me and just how you've been traveling, you know, with, with Munich Re uh, from Germany over to the States. So just kind of wanted to learn more about your background and just kind of share your, your story with our audience here. Definitely. Um, so the important thing about me is by training, I'm an engineer. And if you're an engineer, you basically don't dream coming to the insurance industry. So it is always something happening in your life, which brings you into this great industry. In my case, it was I'm an engineer specialized in semiconductors, and I was setting up solar cell factories around the world, happily doing this. But then back in 2012, this industry failed in Germany. My company also became bankrupt. And it was, I needed a career change because not only my company was in trouble, the whole industry in Germany was in trouble. So I had decided I have to think out of the box. And then I came across an advertisement from my now employer, Munich Re, that they are looking for engineers joining Munich Re. I'm like, that's interesting. I'm an engineer. And they also were looking for people, especially in the renewable energy sector. And I said to myself, that's me. Let's apply. So I applied. I got an invitation to the interview. And I'm like, hmm, typically I prepare for an interview. But what should I tell the one of the biggest reinsurers in the world about their business? But as it turned out, I'm still here. So it could only go one of two ways, either really bad or really good. And it went really good. Awesome. Yeah, no. So what you're kind of saying is, you know, you needed to look for a, a new opportunity. You know, you needed a career shift. You know, the industry you're in, seen better days. And then, you know, I, I would think if I was in, in your perspective, you know, back then, I have these skills, you know, a skill set that I've worked, you know, years to develop. How can I transfer these skills to, to my new job? How can I cross over uh, and not just have to, you know, restart and just kind of everything uh, not be applicable. And that's something I find very interesting of, of the insurance industry is the industry itself, you know, insures so many different businesses. And then these businesses can be like very specialized. So it would help to have that background before you cross over into the insurance industry. So that's why, you know, I, I think like your perspective is, is very interesting, very, very unique. And, you know, I think that's great that, that Munich was able to bring you into the industry. Yeah, and I guess, and it holds true for Munich Re, but I think for all major insurance companies and reinsurance companies, insurance is the home of 100 jobs, we call it. So we have in Munich Re and the others will have as well, literally people with hundreds of big, uh, different backgrounds. So we have engineers like me and we do what we call engineering insurance. That means we are insuring construction projects and all uh, power projects. So I'm insuring a lot of renewable power projects, obviously. But we also hire 
ship captains and they make marine insurance. We hire, we literally have um, space engineers, which ensure the rocket programs of the world. We do have medical doctors, which are in our health insurance. So there's a lot of different professions which come then after already five to 10 years of successful career in their profession into the insurance industry, because it helps a lot if you understand the underlying business of a company when you want to insure it. No, I couldn't agree more with that. So just kind of reflecting back on that time, what was kind of that, that biggest change in the first few months at, at Munich Re, like kind of in the way that you think about risk? Like, were you doing like architects, engineers, design and build, like the E&O exposure? Were you doing more of like the wraps, like the building kind of construction side or, or kind of like property once it's already built? What was kind of your, your skill set there? What kind of lines of business were you working on? So basically, Munich Re hired me to become an underwriter in the property space to really physical damage on major construction projects and all operational power plants. And the biggest change, of course, is if you change your career like this, it's like hmm, the beginning, you don't know really what to expect. What will this be about? And for me, engineers, typically, I think the biggest change is Typically, as an engineer, whatever you do before, typically you are focusing on a detail. That's how it is. I used to produce machines to make solar cells. And of course, I was in the details of these machines and optimizing the process. So you are very focused on one specific item, typically. Insurance is broad. So now, every day over my t table, a lot of different company comes, which do a lot of different stuff. I get a lot of different information. And within a short time, you have to get your underwriting view of this company if you want to insure them or not and if you want to insure them for which price or which conditions which line size questions like this so it's a different view on things so you are not in details anymore but you get this helicopter view you have to be able to look at holistically as you're insured and say is that a risk i want to put on the balance sheet of my company yeah. Did you find that kind of like cool to be able to see like a bigger picture of like the, you know, the engineering side of it? Like you said, when you were kind of by trade, by practice doing the work, you were kind of limited kind of in scope, but you took it, you know, a deeper dive into it. And now, you know, you're kind of taking a step back, kind of like helicopter view, like you're saying. So you're kind of seeing the bigger picture, but then you're kind of talking about being competitive kind of in the industry, just the way carriers are set up. You have to make a decision, tell a broker, are you going to insure it or not? And, you know, the brokers, you know, a quick no is just as good as a yes sometimes just being able to get that responsiveness from, from the carrier. So you don't have all the time in the world to analyze this submission in front of you. Exactly. So now being eight years in the insurance industry. So, yes, I do love it. Otherwise, I wouldn't stay. So I think it's a personality question if you like this perspective, and I do like it. And for me, it's really interesting that basically in the line of business I'm doing, I really see basically the biggest things done in the world, or at least in the regions I am. So now being in the US, of course, every major infrastructure project or every major industrial construction is either reaching my desk or the desk of a colleagues. And as we always discuss risks in the group, uh, basically, I heard about all of them. So literally, I'm living in New York City. When I walk down the city, I do see a lot of projects where we are involved, either because we wrote them or even if we did not write them, in, we were looking at it. So that's really rewarding, <laughs> to use the name of your podcast, so in this industry, that you really get this 
view into it and if you are and sometimes of course i mean everybody is personally interested in something and when i get a submission on something what i'm personally just interested i look into it deeper than i normally would just out of personal interest so that's one of the good things about the job and yeah and the thing is what you really have to learn and to really be able to to make decisions in a limited time so you get submissions in and yes your counterparty which is typically the broker wants to have an answer within a short time and of course also and darren they typically don't just accept a no even if you don't want to don't do it so there should be a good reason why you don't do it and so you quickly have to go through the submissions and look for the most pain points which are depending on what you have to ensure if this all you know raises any red flags and then if it does that's typically it for the submission and if not yeah, you are more likely to really work on it so basically when i see something most likely the first half an hour is decisive on it just for the first indication will i do it or not so you look at it for half an hour on something and try to understand what it's about does it fit our risk appetite is there any red flags and if it fits the risk appetite and no red flags then basically yes we will work on it and spend much more time on it and if not typically you already think about declining it can you kind of talk about that that progression there, you know, coming into the industry, you had kind of this in-depth knowledge of businesses that you were looking at or kind of like the exposures kind of of that. But then you had to learn what an underwriter is, how an underwriter works, how they manage their time, where to like play in the industry, how do you communicate with brokers? And like, as you're saying, those pain points, what is the question? You know, what are your questions back to the brokers? before you are going to, you know, accept or decline this risk. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Definitely. And and there comes into play what I really is in the heart of the underwriting in the end, in the specialized lines we are doing. But overall, it's in the end a teamwork because you cannot know everything. Definitely you can't. It's too many companies out there, too many different things they are doing. And as I said, I'm specialized in semiconductors, but I do ensure now bridges and tunnels. So I'm an engineer, self-respecting, but I'm not a civil engineer who knows the ins and out on everything on a bridge and a tunnel. But guess what? Munich Re and also the other insurers, they also have civil engineers employed and so on. So when I want to write a bridge, I will definitely reach out for one of our civil engineers and talk with him or her about, yeah, what do you think about this bridge? So basically this network aspect within your company is really important because you have to figure out what do you know? Even more important, what you don't know about the risk and then who in the company does know more about it. So basically, one of the things you typically do in all risks is you reach out to internal experts which know more about it than you. And then, of course, try to figure it out. And it might be the technical experts, but of course, you need legal experts for wording questions, all like this. And this is what you really get trained on in the beginning to understand that this has to be done like it so in the beginning you are like you start reading 50 to 100 pages insurance language and you're like how should i ever do this but yeah you will be able to do this <laughs> after some time but it's nothing where you can you know come in and after two weeks do it no it takes years of training that you really feel self self-confident enough to do it and also know and that's really the critical thing what do I not know about something? And then make sure that you cover this places by reaching out to colleagues who help you covering this specific questions. And of course, on the other side, 
as said, I'm one of the renewable energy experts, for example, in Munich Re. So when people have renewable energy submissions, they often come to me for specific questions. And definitely I enjoy that. Makes a lot of sense. And just kind of that collaborative environment and kind of specializing, you know, within the carrier, like uh, that's what really attracted me to the carrier side as well. Like I, I just actually accepted a, a job to start a carrier uh, in the new year, uh, QBE. So that's going to be exciting. But yeah, just kind of that collaborative nature. And then just what you just said too is with renewable energy, that's your background, that's your expertise. And you're kind of like, how do you portray or kind of let others know, you know, within the company, hey, like I'd like to be available to help on the, the renewable energy products or like how does internally, how do you kind of develop or like build that credibility with, with other underwriters? I mean, in principle, there are three main ways this is done within Munich Re. And I guess it's equivalent in most companies. The one thing is we have formal trainings programs where people offer to teach you about specific topics. And of course, I'm in there and giving once in a while a talk about renewable energies that people know about my background via this. Then you have the official internal knowledge networks and so on, where basically we post our special experience and so on, which everybody can access and then people can search for it. And that are the two official ways this is done. But I think the most important still is the personal network. So basically, you reach out to other people and let them know what is your specific area of expertise. And you try to figure out what is their specific area of expertise. And everybody has that, that you in the end know even if you don't know a person directly, whom I can reach out first, who might send me in the right direction. So that you really get this network within a company and especially the big carriers, we are international. So that means I speak with people, of course, in Germany, but also over in Asia and so on, which are experts on specific questions all the time. And I really love this about my job because everybody in this company knows that this is the only way how we can do it. So everybody's open. So when I drop an internal email, hey, can you help me out on that? Always the email comes back. Sure. Yes. Let's set up a talk. Let's a call. And everybody's like this. And this is really a very collaborative uh, um, thing. So I really like this. So you have to, so you can't sit, even so I'm sitting alone in my desk at home now in the COVID crisis in one and a half years, but I never feel I'm sitting alone in, on a desk. So it's, you're really part of a team. And this team is, of course, your core team where you underwrite with, but it's typically a wider team worldwide of people who work on the same topics around the world. And of course, it's always interesting. And, and that's what I also like. If something big happens in the world, I know Munich Re is involved, so if I'm really interested, I always can find out internally who's handling the claim or who's the underwriter and learn more about a specific issue, which is, you know, just also personally sometimes very interesting. So so what's kind of the conversation like kind of in that personal networking, you know, internal company? It's not really like an official kind of platform, just you know, the grapevine, as you as you might say, just kind of internal like chat. But then how do you kind of approach that? There's a the big shift to specialists versus like the generalist model and, you know, get very deep into what you're doing instead of trying to get like a broader kind of know a lot about a little kind of focus. But like, how do you kind of approach that, you know, going to, you know, a coworker and I don't know if it's like, hey, I know a lot about this. And then they might be like, well, I know about this too. Why should I have you work on this account? Like, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? 
And I guess this is different in every company in Munich Re prior to COVID. Now it doesn't work at the moment, but basically it was the lunch breaks. That was the big networking issue. So you made a habit out of it, trying to do lunch with people you don't typically speak to. <laughs> and then over lunch, just, you know, figuring out what they are doing and giving back what you are doing. And then typically you made often very interesting connections. So it was that, you know, um, I often get invited from colleagues I don't know about. Just they send an email and say, hey, you want to do lunch? And obviously you want to do lunch and vice versa. I look around, oh, what would be what I have no idea about? Let's have lunch with somebody from this department and just trying to figure out, you know, what they are doing, what it is, because it's so broad insurance. So it's always great. So that was one thing. So either you have a lunch or sometimes you just say, hey, let's have half an hour and coffee together, something like this. Which people might say, hey, you sit, sit around and drink coffee. That's you know, not productive. You're wasting the, um, the money of the company. But typically, it's one of the most effective ways that you basically get to know who else is there, what people are doing. And then it's typically also, obviously, uh, before you speak to somebody over the phone and so on, when you once had a personal interaction, it normally goes much better over the phone. That's how humans are. <laughs> This human touch is important. I think it changed now a little bit with COVID that we are all more and more used to just meeting people virtually and still being fine with it. But I guess it still will come back that this personal relation gets is important. Yeah, no, I, I think that's honestly such a good networking tip is just kind of, you know, talking to the people that you don't normally talk to. So like the underwriters in your division, your unit, you know, people that you collaborate with and go over the risks with, you know, you're talking to them on an everyday basis, but then, you know, people in claims, like the claims team, people in kind of like the broker relations, kind of working with the distribution partners from the carrier's perspective, you might not really talk to them on a day-to-day -day basis, but you're still going to need like that relationship that's still going to be, you know, helpful uh, to the company as a whole to kind of know what's going on outside your very like specialized unit. Exactly. So that's really, and it's also, and Depends, of course, on your personality, but I only can recommend it to everyone. Yeah? Get in touch with your colleagues, which are not in your department, because they are, it's typically you also learn the most and get the most interesting stories. And it's really this network which will help you later if something, sometimes strange things happen, you know, strange requests come in and so on. And then you are like, wait, once a lunch three weeks ago so, or three months ago, somebody talked to me about this a bit. Let's pick up the phone and have a conversation and say, hey, does, is that what we talked about? And then it might be like, yes, of course, or no, not exactly, but ask a person X, Y, Z. They know more about this. And then you typically find within two, three phone calls really the person to talk to. And, it, and that's really the good thing that in the big insurance carriers, and Munich Re is one of them, or reinsurance, you typically find a person which really knows this. So this is really what is great. Yeah, It's not like, oh, we don't know this. Oh, uh, damn it. No, you only have to find the right person. So it's kind of impressive. No, it's very impressive how deep the knowledge in most company goes. Yeah, I really like that perspective, honestly. I think that's really cool. And then just kind of, you know, in into your own division, you know, the underwriters that you are working with along like that engineering kind of subject matter experts, Uh, just kind of with, you know, reviewing risks, risks coming in and like you're not making underwriting decisions, you know, alone. You're bringing in other underwriters, you're collaborating with them, you're discussing, you know, details because how you review the risk might be different than 
other underwriter kind of analyzes this, this risk. And you know, at the end of the day, it's also millions of dollars, you know, in capacity that you're that you're putting up. So you have to, you know, go up the ladder, get authority approval or or whatever it is. But I mean it's definitely helpful. Can you kind of talk about that process a little more? Definitely. So as you said, we put millions or tens of million of capital of the company at risk. So most companies in Munich Re also have the strict 4i policy. So I cannot sign any insurance contract alone. It must be at least two persons which do that. And that's the official rule. Typically, depend on what it is. We might it, it, When it's simple, you know, what we regard as simple, uh, two might be enough. When it's, of course, a complex thing like building a new airport for $10 billion or new LNG terminal for $20 billion somewhere down in Louisiana. It's like, okay, let's better talk with a couple of people about it and really touch the basis that we really looked into the technical aspect of it. And here, of course, the perspective is always what can go wrong. And that's what insurance is for, for the bad days and the really bad days. So what are the potential hazards, anything, any object faces and we do physical damage. So it's typically the combination out of everything what natural catastrophes are doing. And now don't get me started on the changes with climate change and wildfires and more hurricanes. So all very complex topics. And then on the other side, you have, of course, everything what is man-made. So basically that there are fires, explosion, things which go wrong and underlying typically the reason is somebody did something wrong or something was not designed to specification, stuff like that. And therefore, underwriting is a science and an art at the same time. So of course, we can model natural catastrophes. We, are, we, we have a lot of models. We do a lot of stuff. But in the end, fundamentally also, we as the underwriters have to get a feel for the risk. Do we trust the risk management of the client? Do we feel they have it under control? And therefore, we also love to go out. Uh, at the moment, complicated, but we love to go out and see the site, speak with the people and get a feeling. Because everybody, for example, small things will say, hey, we have a non-smoking policy on an LNG plant. Yeah, be inside and just look around the corner and find out oh, there are the. St <laughs> so, are they really living it, or is that just something what they tell you that they are having? And um, that is the art of underwriting. And there, of course, it helps to talk with colleagues and get a joint gut feeling about risk, and then combine basically the real, just rational analysis on models and so on with your own feeling about the risk to get then a comprehensive view on it and say, okay, based on this, we do it. And then in all companies, it's like this. You have some limit of how much capacity you can do personally together with your 4i review person. And if you want to deploy more capacity from the company, you have to go to higher levels of the management and ask them if they also agree to give out more capacity. And obviously on the risks we really like, we do this. And then you might even speak with you know, the head of your department or even go, I did this once really into the, the board of the company and ask if we can do a couple of hundreds of millions of <laughs> risk capital to one client. So, yeah. So how do you stay responsive in kind of that process? I mean, the two, the four eyes rule, like the two people, you and someone else, doesn't seem that difficult. But, what, you know, I, I guess it would have been a lot easier if you're actually in the office, like, oh, hey, can you come over here and look at this very quick? Now it might be a little harder, but then like, how do you, you know, stay responsive to the broker, the brokers, the distribution partners kind of during that, especially when you go up the ladder, you know, high up to, as you say, the board, 
And I would also think, you know, I've seen it, you know, I did a short stint at a carrier about five weeks. So I kind of saw the process of, you know, the underwriters going to the line manager's office, kind of like talking, but like you have to pitch it, you know, like, oh, this is coming from this broker. You know, this is a good risk. We have a lot of business with them. Like you really have to like sell it, especially if that's your manager or your manager's manager. Like that could be kind of a difficult conversation, I would think. Definitely. I mean, as more capacity we put out, as more potentially bad it could go for the company. So you really have to get your pitch right that you are like, why do you want to put out so much capacity? And that's what you ask about the broker or the client. It's always important to make good expectation management. So keep the line open, speak with the broker and tell them, hey, we are in the process. We want to do this. And they understand that there's a process involved. The worst thing you can do is overpromise on the phone what you in the end cannot hold on the paper. So you really have to be aware that when you tell a broker, I'm doing, you know, a 20% line, in the end, you only can do a 10% line. That will not go well with the broker. So even if you just said it on the phone, you must be very mindful on expectation setting that you really tell them where you are because they listen to this and they expect you, of course, to deliver in the end. So especially when you feel like there might be issues in getting, you know, the approval because it might be, for example, very hurricane exposed and then the, it might be that uh, higher management said oh we already have enough hurricane exposure in this area we don't want to be too overexposed in this area nothing with this client but you know we have to look at our whole portfolio that is enough on hurricane exposure in this area in florida for example so you have to anticipate those things and really make expectation management with your broker and say, hey, this is where we are in the process and I cannot promise you this, but you know, that's where we want to go and always really make clear what you can say, what you are quite sure of and what you are not sure of. And then you get a good relation with the broker and they can trust you. So my brokers now know when I tell them I will do 10%, then I will come with a 10% line. Otherwise, I would not tell them I do a 10% line. Then I would tell them, hmm, I don't know yet. We are still working on capacity. We have to see that. So this is a very important aspect. And also, of course, the learning curve, the brokers always pressure you to get you to say, accept something already on the phone <laughs> or say something on the phone where then it's really hard. Even, of course, you did not write, give this in writing, but still they trust your word. So those phone calls you. And that's something I learned in a broker call. You have to get prepared mentally what you are willing to share in this call and what definitely not. <laughs> and really also to get this expectation management right. Because when you give them the wrong expectation, that will always then lead to a lot of confusion. Yeah, no, exactly. I find it very interesting because, you know, I've been mostly on the brokerage side with internships and now I'm going to the care side. So I, exactly what you're saying is the relationship building and setting expectations. Because if you're the underwriter, you tell a broker, yeah, we got you. Don't worry. You know, that broker might be like, oh, okay, let me, I don't have to respond to the other markets. Because I mean, that's, they have to, you know, there's always other markets in it. So if they like aren't setting up, you know, at what point does the broker have to go back to, you know, the client team, go back to the insured, get more information? Like there's so much balancing going on behind the scenes. Yes, I'm sure they want to bind the account with you, with Munich Re, uh, but they, they have to, you know, check the price, check the coverage with some other players out there. So, you know, what does that broker do with that information of, oh, yeah, Munich Re is going to quote this. Like, if you don't deliver, that puts them in a bad place, that puts them, that clients in a bad place. And then if that client doesn't get that, 
you know, renewal or get that quote from this broker, then the, the insured's going to bring in a different broker. You know, like there, there's just a lot going on behind the scenes with that. Exactly. And therefore, um, it's really important. And of course, sometimes things happen you do, do not expect. You cannot foresee the future, <laughs> you know. Um, so that means if you already said something to a broker, what you wanted to do, and then something changed drastically that w reversed your position on this, you have to pick up the call, the phone immediately and call him and say, hey, I remember I said X, Y, Z, but sorry, there should be then a good reason. This and that happened. Uh, we have to, you know, it will go a different direction. And this typically brokers, they are not happy about it, but they, uh, it's much better to inform them already on the phone and not just, you know, sit it out and then send out your quote with totally different from what was discussed prior on the phone. Legally, of course, you can do it, but it will not help you <laughs> with your relationship. And yeah, you want that the broker send business to you. So you have to get the expectation management right. And also, I mean, when you have renewal business, what we have, so operational power accounts, which renew every year, if you have an account where you feel like, oh, I don't want to renew this account, this account is troublesome for some reason, you have to tell this quite early in the process and say, hey, based on we are on the risk and this happened and we are not happy with that, we definitely think this year we might want to get off risk because that means the broker has to find new capacity and they have to know that early because typically they expect you to renew. So very important. And that means you also have to think about your renewals early enough that you know your own position because when you just figure out three days before renewal that you don't want to renew, yeah, bad timing. So <laughs> be be mindful of your risk and say, hey, which ones uh, might be troublesome for me and then be proactive on them early in the game. Yeah, let's go back to what you were saying about the delayed communication. Don't don't delay communication. You know, if you have bad news, the bad news doesn't get better, you know, with time, the longer you wait. I mean, the brokers need the time, as you say, to, to market, to find that capacity. So, you know, I just think humans, you know, as a whole, just kind of have like that tendency to like, want to avoid conflict or maybe like kind of push it, you know, down the road a little, like you said, oh, you could just send the email with the terms that you didn't see on the phone, you know, but now it's in writing. Uh, or you could, you know, really try to maintain that relationship with this broker, be very communicated, you know, up, up front with them, you know, on the phone and not just, you know, send them that, that policy with, or that quote with, you know, what they weren't expecting. How do you kind of get in that headspace to want to get you know, ahead of this coming conflict. So what personally helps me a lot is really making up your underwriting strategy early. So even if you have not shared, and of course you don't share everything with the broker, but have in your mind already basically the red lines and so on, and also write down why you want to do this like this. And then of course the facts might change. And when the fact might change or you discover something in the submission you we're not expecting, then of course you reverse your position. And so this means um, also important is never go to a broker call totally un unprepared. So they send in a submission and typically they ask, you want to call on it? Yeah, don't make this call before you have read it and make up your mind because in the call, they always will ask you, what do you want to do with this risk? In which direction is this going? And that will set the tone for the conversation. And if you did not have the time yet to review the risk, um, yeah, how you want to set the tone because you did not make up your mind yet. So it really helps to have your own position clear already, at least well enough 
that you can communicate something. And then it's easier to talk with everybody because when you self are unsure what you want to do, yeah, the brokers, then it will get a more complicated um, discussion. So that for take your time to make your decision what you want to do prior to <laughs> discussing with the broker <laughs> what you think you're going to do. And that means basically you have to withstand sometimes time pressure that say, hey, we want to talk. And you have to tell them, guys or girls, I still need to review that. And then we talk and not now. Yeah? Sorry for that. I'm working on it. I will come back. And of course, you have to come back in a reasonable time. But take your time uh, to really make up your mind. That helps you down the road much more than to be early available and have no clue about the risk. Yeah, no, that, that got, gave me a little laugh there because, you know, I, I've seen it, you know, the emails coming in from, from the brokers and the underwriters like, oh, this broker is calling about this account. I'm not going to look at this account for 30 more minutes because I have to get these quotes out before I you know even look at this new submission, just kind of like that workflow. And then like, if you know why that broker is calling and you don't have any information, like you say, you don't want to be, you don't want to be pressured or, or kind of, as you say, make like those you know, inaccurate statements or without like that full information before you get on that. And then also it's kind of like that tone, you know, going into these broker calls or any interactions with the brokers. What is that message you want to like communicate to them? You know, your interest or what you can do, what you can deliver. And then I think it's also sets the tone of what questions, you know, are you going to ask about their accounts or one specific account, you know, in general, like, because I, I think kind of like, oh, you know, where is the risk located or, or something like this, like, or how many years of experience does this engineer have? Like, I think that might play into like how comfortable you are. Like, oh, if they have 10 years experience, maybe you'd quote versus if they had two years experience, then that would be kind of like that red line that you kind of talked about. Exactly. And, but uh, trust is a two-way road. So, I mean, of course you want that the brokers trust you and can trust your worth. But it goes the other way around. So I also have my own trust level in different brokers because you, of course, also ask brokers and you basically, and I mean, we do insurance. So we know there are some things which are important to decisions about if you want to write something and so on. So and the brokers, I have a good relationship. They will upfront tell me, hey, you know what? Either there is some technological issue in an account, which, you know, is something known in the industry, what always is discussed, or there had been a big loss and so on. And I don't have to find this out, you know, in the submission on page 376 after two weeks of reading. And then I'm disappointed in the broker when it's like, you know, the main things which are known. I want, you know, when we talk about that, he mentioned, hey, and be aware this account has this specific profile and they're working on it, whatever. This really then gives me trust in the broker that they also, you know, there are complicated accounts. And of course, that's what we take. We take risk in the end. That's our business. So there's not a problem per se with a complicated account, but it should be openly discussed that we know what are we looking at. And so, and when brokers omit that, when they say sorry later, one time it's fine. But when, you know, some brokers omit a lot of things all the time and you are like, okay, noted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think that as what you're saying is trust, but like the two-way street, that just makes the whole process more efficient. You know, if the brokers, as you say, you know, they know where that smoking gun is. You know, if they don't have, well, I'm in like a cyber internship right now. So like we know if they don't have multi-factor authentication, like I am I did a submission this morning. I put that out, you know, the insured lacks MFA because that, that's their guidelines sometimes. Like that might kick out 
like they, that might be out of appetite right away. So just to let them know up front, you know, like the brokers know where like the smoking gun is most of the time. But then like depending on your distribution, like, you know, wholesale to retailer, like there just might be so many people involved that you don't really know. Uh, but still like that, that trust definitely would help. Yeah. So to speak, yeah, insurance is also an industry of trust yeah, because you get your a network of trust with brokers and of course colleagues and so on and vice versa people trust you so that means it has repercussions if you break those trusts and of course you know it's business so sometimes things go the other way and it was not intended but you have to live with the fallout and be proactive and say hey here we had to change our mind for example on something because of this and that that's much better than when people find out later on or you know very late and that can be much more damaging to a relationship than just upfront say, hey, I know I said X, but sorry, it's now Y because of whatever the reason. So, so what else is, is Munich Re doing and kind of, you know, you came from like the engineering pool, kind of that process. You can briefly talk about that. But then like, is this kind of, you know, it's very like industry specific where you're training kind of like the risk specialists for cyber would be kind of like the IT folks coming in and then kind of learning like the actual you know cyber insurance pool like is that i mean i I think a lot of carriers might be doing it i I don't really know uh but bringing kind of like that crossover you know into the insurance industry like what what else is munich doing with that like getting the underwriters or the brokers that like speak you know the insurance language that they're familiar with kind of these terms and kind of very like industry specific uh like content yeah so Completely right. So that's something Munich Re and others are doing that you try to get talent out of the industry and Munich Re is doing it for engineers with the engineering pool. And we have a huge cyber pool because cyber insurance is one of the biggest growing fields. The threat nature is changing dramatically uh, all the time. And in our cyber pool, we have very interesting candidates. We get candidates which worked for big IT companies, but we also get people which worked in the secret services and we are basically in cyber defenses and now coming over to the insurance industry to really help us to understand the exposures clients face in the cyber space. So this is the pools we do and then we actively always look for specific backgrounds for fields where you know new risks are emerging. And at the moment, for example, we are looking more into wildfire risks. So definitely we will hire people who have good knowledge about wildfire <laughs> exposures and then help us in our modeling teams. So basically all the carriers always uh, respond to what's happening out there in the world and then get the right people in to write this kind of business and be as we want to take the risk, but you can only take take the risk when you can be reasonably aware what kind of risk you're writing. It's not, you know, it's not gambling. It's like, yeah, you have a risk model and you really think about how much risk we can take and is that risk which we on average sustainably also can continue writing without making huge losses. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's kind of something huge that you just touched on is is you have to know what you're getting into. If you're the insurance carrier, you have to think about all the risks and like, you know, it's kind of what you don't know is what hurts you. You know, if there's a claim exposure out there that you didn't think of or didn't really address, you know, in the policy you're probably going to end up paying for it, you know. Definitely. It's typically all risk policies with exclusions. When it's not excluded, it's covered. And also in Munich Re, when we, when we are hit by a 5 billion hurricane claim, 
but uh, in total that's not one risk but you know a lot of different policies responding at the same time to one hurricane and our internal model predicted it should be you know something between 4.5 to 5.5 billion of course it's still a huge payout but it's like that's what we expected we priced for it all good really bad is when we are hit by major claims where we did not have it in the model and for example where I think we were very well prepared is like, yeah, everybody's like, oh, who should have predicted a pandemic? Of course we did. I mean, <laughs> it's like the last major pandemic was in 1918, the Spanish flu. I know it's 103 years ago, but this was always based in our models, especially on the life insurance side and so on. Because yeah, a pandemic can re lead to mesh casualties. Sadly, a lot of people can die. And yes, of course, this is covered under life insurance. So yes, it's a risk we always factored in our models. So we are not completely like, oh, pandemic, who would have thought of this? Of course, we could not predict that it is in 2000, happening in 2020. But yeah, uh, we are not there like saying, oh, we did not model for this. We did. And that's good. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very interesting perspective. And therefore, it's always important to keep up this emerging emerging risks, what we say. So what could come next? Uh, what is something where we might pay out, which we don't predict at the moment? And that's what should not happen in a large scale. Therefore, also small losses, which happen relatively small, a couple of millions, an area where we didn't expect it, will raise you know, the internal flags and say, hey, we have to look into this subject. Why did we pay out 10 million on this where we did not expect it? What, what went wrong? Why didn't we get this beforehand? And that's how insurance evolves. And that's always intellectually rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Well, well to, to wrap up here, you know, we covered a lot of content. Uh, we talked about kind of the, the process of, you know, the being an engineer as your background and then coming into the insurance industry and kind of getting that, you know, helicopter view, kind of a little less in the details, but a broader perspective. Uh, we covered, you know, as you say, everyone is, is personally interested in something. So I think that's, that's awesome for, for you. And, you know, the other folks that are kind of that, that crossover candidate, crossover, like coming from, you know, the industry and then going to insurance and then insuring that industry. You know, I, I think that's really cool because you have that expertise and you also have that passion for it because you did that kind of similar day to day. Uh, we touched on networking tips. Uh, as you say, having having lunch with, you know, people you usually don't talk to. I really like that because you would think, you know, you just go out for lunch to people you do talk to a lot. But, you know, if you're already talking to them during that, you know, outside of a lunch break, it would, it would be a good time to kind of maybe see some new faces and kind of learn more about the, the company as a whole. Uh, we talked about the relationship building, about trust and, you know, the repercussions of gets broken. And then kind of with uh, pitching to the brokers, uh, communicating expectations, and then also pitching to, you know, your managers or whoever has that authority level uh, kind of going up the ladder. So I, yeah, that definitely great episode. We really covered a lot there. Yeah. So thanks a lot. I mean, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you for coming on, Stefan. Thanks for listening to Risk Reward. Like what you've heard, find more episodes at the National Alliance website, scic.com, or download directly from Spotify or wherever else you get your shows. If you would like to get more involved, please fill out our listener survey. Your ideas and feedback help us bring you the most relevant content. Be sure to subscribe for the newest episodes.